Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, Patrick, we are back. We're recording the last Q&A of the year, but it will be the first Q&A of the year because this will come out in January of 2022, which sounds crazy that I'm talking about 2022, but hey, man, good things to come for, for, for both of us. So how are you doing today, man? Yeah, well, it's good, Jay. I think this is a great time, you know. It, it's almost that intentionally that humankind realized that in many countries, winter can be quite a depressing oh, period. Yes. So let's put in two weeks of fun and drinking alcohol <laughs> and letting go. And it kind of, it just enhances the spirit a little bit. There's a psychological aspect to Christmas or holidays or, you know, it, it's quite amazing how it was placed and where it was placed. It wasn't placed in the middle of right. summer in Europe. It was placed in the middle All of winter. All by design, right? It's, uh, it's. Yeah, Absolutely. you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but it's it's true. I mean, this is the time where, you know, we're really kind of we've taken that strong shift into the winter months. Vitamin D levels are low. Like it's getting gloomy outside, even here in the States, like it's getting gloomy. And so it's like, what can we do to put like some good joy and cheer and yeah, excuse to drink as much alcohol as humanly possible <laughs> without like having quote unquote regret. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and so, uh, yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. That's that's funny. Is that what you guys talk about in Ireland? This is why we do it here in the States? Well, not really, but like it's just kind of, there's a tomb that was close enough to where I was brought up called Newgrange. And it was built about 5,000 years ago. It predates the pyramids. Oh. And on the 21st of December, the shortest day of the year, it's the only day that the light enters one aspect of the tomb and reaches all the way to the oh, very end. Interesting. So, yeah, so it was, it was, I suppose, a pagan ritual or, you know, in terms of worshipping this time of the year, the winter solstice. So, yeah, I think it's, 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 a, it's a really nice time to just to wind down for a few days. So I have to say I've got one more event and that's it for 2021. So this is, oh, this, you're, you're my, my second last <laughs> oh man. Well, you know, I'm glad I could be a part of the year-end wrap for you. And you're you're a part of it for me as well. I've got two, I think two more podcasts. I've got one more this week and then another one next week and then I can kind of like turn things down for the year. But you're my you're my last one before No, I got one more before Christmas. So <laughs> it's, you know, a couple couple things dialing down, but I think that you and I probably are uh, both in need of some just kind of rest and relaxation because I know I've been talking to you about the chaos that has ensued this year. You know, it's just been kind of and we talked about this in the last podcast episode 
it's just been kind of like a crazy last few years. Um, crazy in the sense that like it's, you know, we had the pandemic and then now we're trying to kind of recover from everything. And then this year, things just kind of exploded on our end with the development of Hanu. And then just people are like, okay, I'm ready to get back to doing things, especially things for my health. So to wrap up the year with you, Patrick, uh, again, this was all by design. So glad to be able to do another one of these with you. Absolutely. No, it's all good. So yeah, yeah, Patrick, it's just been a, it's been a, you know, a chaotic last few years because, you know, we had the pandemic and then everything that kind of ensued with it. And then we thought, you know, we were on like the back end of the pandemic and then all these variants come up. And so it just causes like this mass chaos. But, you know, like luckily like this past year, it's been that people are like, okay, like uh, I get it. Like COVID-19 for the most part, it's going to be here for a long time. Like, I don't know when it's going to truly like end and we're not going to talk about it. I'm not sure if we ever will as like sad as that sounds. I, I just don't, I don't know. Uh, but people are like, let me take back my health because at least I'm finding that health is a really primary factor uh, to making sure that I survive and that I continue to thrive. And so I think that for you and I, it's probably resulted in just a lot of really good work this year. I mean, is that kind of, kind of merry with what you've experienced? Yeah, it is. I actually think it's a very sad reflection of humankind, Jay. And I don't want to get into the politics of where this has originated from. But there's been very few answers, you know, like mankind is the only species that will be responsible for the destruction of mankind. And here we are getting a taste of it. Um, this is not necessarily, you know, one can ask the question, is this a, a virus that originated from a lab? And, you know, there's some scenarios seem to suggest it is. And if that's the way it is, um, we could end up making a mess of it. And I'm talking about the human species here now from myself. I've found it very helpful to isolate myself from the media to some extent and just listen to the news maybe once every now and again, or sometimes I might even listen to it for weeks and months. And I, but I just, I can't help just reflect on the next, the generations, the kids, if this is something that they will live with. But then again, human beings, we are very resilient and I would agree with you. It's, probably the most important time for any of us now to start delving in, you know, and doing what we can do to help control anxiety and, re and improve sleep quality. But then again, I suppose anxiety has reduced in other areas. You know, people are not rushing about as they were. We spoke about this the last time, you know, there's more working from home, which gives people a sense of freedom. And there's added challenges then again, of course, because, if you are working from home, then how is productivity monitored? And that's going to be something that's going to generate a little bit of tension, I'm sure. So, you know, there's there's so many things. I suppose it's just, it's change, isn't it? And change can be disruptful. Right. I mean, things have, have changed. And I think that I've noticed a lot too that, you, I mean, you're right. Humans are absolutely like the most resilient beings on the planet. I mean, that is how we have thrived and evolved to what we are now and will continue hopefully to evolve and become better as human beings. Uh, and so the adaptability and the resiliency is there. What I have found is that when people are reluctant to kind of evolve, uh, when they're kind of just like maybe even hopeful 
or wishful that everything would just kind of go back to as it was. Like, I think that that's a reasonable thing to wish for and hope for. But when you get stuck into that position, then uh, it can feel extremely detrimental to your health when you feel like things aren't progressing the way that you want to, or maybe digressing. I don't know. Now I wouldn't say digress, but progressing back to the way you were. So I've had to watch um, kind of myself and my uh, the way that I interact with media, just as you mentioned as well, because I tended to be one, I say tended, past tense. I tended to be a person who did keep up a lot with the news. I read a lot of New York Times, a lot of Washington Post, a lot of Wall Street Journal, just like a lot of those news outlets. And I was just getting to the point where, and I think I mentioned this last time, it was just, it was affecting my mental health and I completely cut it off. And and that has gone to like the point of where like I'll have buddies of mine ask, hey, did you see you know so-and-so on the news? Or my wife will say, hey, did you check this out? She's kind of cut off media as well. I'm like, no, not not at all. Like, and uh, and I think that it's actually really made me a better person not to engage so much. And I'm not like speaking down to those people who love to still engage in media. But for me, like a turning the dial down or the knob down on, uh, you know, more like modern media plus like social media, both of those has been really helpful for me. And it's actually one of my big primary health goals as I go into the new year, which is actually is a great transition. See what I did there as to the topic that I wanted to talk to you about, because I was really curious about two things, Patrick, and I and I, I'll, I'll share mine after I hear yours. But I wanted to ask you two things, and this is obviously regarding health and resiliency and the things that you've been working on and the things that you hope to work on. Because again, this podcast will release on the first Friday of 2022. So people will be listening to this and you probably know how this goes. Like everybody at the beginning of the new year's, like people make resolutions, they get super gung ho, like I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, the third or fourth week of January rolls around and they're like, I can't even remember like what my goal was. Uh, So I just, wanted to ask you two things, Patrick. The first would be uh, this year. So 2021. Um, so I know people listen to 22, but this past year, which is 2021, uh, what has been kind of like the one primary thing that you focused on or like really place emphasis on for your health? Um, and, and maybe you even feel like I've been successful in this. I really placed emphasis here. And then like for 2022, like what is one thing or maybe a couple things, let's maybe say one thing that you'd really like to place emphasis on in regarding to your health in 2022? So it might be a little bit of a loaded question that you have to think about, but uh, I'll be interested. Physical exercise is my one. Um, And for many years, I was pretty good at it, you know. Now, I wouldn't be a gym type goer, to be honest with you. I have a treadmill here. We've weight machines, etc. So I would have done something at home. But I just found probably 2019 was a transition going from lots of travel into no travel whatsoever. And transitioning to that and a lot of stuff then going online. And it actually got quite busy. We our business grew significantly three or four times in that that one or you know, the two years. But that brings its own challenges. And what you end up doing is then you sacrifice time for yourself in order to make sure that you're you're trying to do your best for the service that you're giving. And the reason being, Jay, is like this. This wasn't a walk in the park. You know, anybody who runs their own little business realizes. There's a lot at stake in terms of you put many years of investment into it. And when finally that it starts to come to fruition, you want to try and maintain that. You don't want to drop the ball. So I suppose we as humans, then it depends on our priority. And there was an interesting thing you said is that you said when you felt it was affecting your mental health. But I feel that many people don't realize when something is affecting their mental health. They have no sense of it. Now, 
I used to, you know, the one thing that would drive me to do physical exercises when I felt guilty when five and six o'clock come. I'd been working since maybe seven or eight a.m. continuously with a couple of breaks and no physical exercise done. And that's when I started making the priority. So yesterday I got a 5K in the morning. This morning before we jump on here, got a 5K in. Don't get it in every day. But for me, that was the single biggest thing. And I do my breathing exercises during the 5K. So that's that done. Yes. Kill two birds with one stone, my friend. Well, we spoke about this sometimes, you know. But like... It's like people would probably think, well, he's in healthcare and he's in this and that and the other. And, you know, <clears throat> he should have absolutely perfect habits and all of this. But you know what? We're, we're, <laughs> we're human and life can get in the way. And that's, that's the way it is. And yes. Patrick, you're so right. But here's one of the things that I always say, too, is that people do expect that. They expect that those who are in healthcare, health and wellness influencers, they expect that they've got all of their ducks in a row. But I will be the first to say that some of the most unhealthy individuals that I have met in my entire life have been in healthcare or have been influencers. And the reason being is because there is so much that is crammed and packed into schedules. And for and for healthcare, those in healthcare, especially physicians, nurses, they they are responsible for taking care of so many individuals that they themselves go to the yeah. wayside. And I can't tell you how many, and this is, it sounds crazy, but a lot of people may relate to this. I can't tell you how many cardiologists that I've met in my life due to the work that you I smoke. do in heart rate variability that you smoke or mm. that are like the most unhealthy individuals like I've ever seen. I'm like, are you actually like doing that? Um, and, and but the reason being isn't because like they don't necessarily care about their health. Number one, like they'd have like basically no time. Uh, well, I say that, you know, in quotes, but then the other thing too, is that they are stressed out of their minds because again, they are throwing everything that they have into taking care of others. And so what happens is, is that they themselves just go by the wayside. So like, I, I, I absolutely like fully understand what you're saying. And I love that you pointed it out because just because you and I are kind of in the health and wellness and healthcare scene doesn't mean that you and I like are doing every single thing every single day that maybe we talk about or we talk to others about. Like we do what we can um, and then we place kind of our motivation and emphasis on certain areas. But sometimes too, like we don't do as much as maybe that we'd like to. And so I appreciate you kind of saying like this year, you've really taken the time and effort to say like exercise needs to be a priority for me and so like here we mm. go uh, and i and it sounds like it's worked well for you yeah, you noticed it's been the great. benefits no no it's been it's been good well it's just even a feel fa- it's a feel factor you know it's getting to the end of the day feeling that i've been able to invest something in myself and you know like with in terms of breathing breathing for me kind of, kind of comes second nature because i'll often tune into the breath many many times throughout the day and i have to say it's been it's been a tremendous activity and something that once you develop the habit, you're not even thinking about it, but it give, gives great space. And I'm talking about space in the head. You know, those gaps between thoughts where you're, you're bringing yourself into the present moment and that you have an ability then to focus your attention on what you want to be focusing it upon, apart from the mind all over the place. And that comes to an interesting question. I was in Dubai about a month ago and we did a taught catching exercise. So basically we had quite a few people, about 30 people or so, sit down for three minutes. And during three minutes, they were to focus on their breathing. 
And every time their mind wandered, they would write a tick on the piece of paper. And at the end of the three minutes, then, is to is to count up the number of ticks. I was actually quite surprised. You know, either we had 30 geniuses, people who were almost enlightened, or it was the opposite. Because they, they showed results, Jay, that over the course of three minutes, that their minds were only wandering about between seven and ten times over three minutes. I don't know if that's a real figure, but I don't know, is there is there any such sort of figure out there, you know? Yeah, that's it's it's really interesting because, you know, I did a lot of training in mindfulness meditation and you know, it's kind of one of those things it's just noticing, you know, it's not about like taking that thought and then trying to suppress it or quote unquote not thinking about it because you know how that works, you know, it's like the idea of like hey, Patrick, don't think about a pink elephant and that's all you can think about. So we would have these exercises where we would kind of yeah, journal like thought caching. And that number that you just quoted within a 3 minute sec- uh, segment, like 7 to 10 times like that seems pretty low um you know even for like really experienced meditators however like maybe these individuals had been practicing like for a fair amount i don't know but the numbers seemed low because i think for me as someone who does a lot of breath work uh does a lot of meditation as well I, i i and but i also have a very active busy mind i would argue probably busier than most people you may term it adhd i don't know but at times like I feel it I, I feel it there because my mind's always like I'm moving to the next thing a lot uh, because again you know running a business uh, doing a lot of uh, podcasting you know a lot of video work like my mind's just kind of like oh well, what's the next thing coming up and so that's that's kind of where I am but yeah that's it's it's interesting seven to you said seven to ten times mm, is that right but that's over the course of three minutes but I know Microsoft did a study but I'm not sure how accurate it is you know it was published back in 2002 they looked at 3,000 people, I think, from Canada, and they, they measured their attention span. They found it to be 12 seconds. And they did that sounds a about right. similar repeat study then in 2012, 10 years later, and they found it had reduced to eight seconds. And they said this is a problem because the goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So, but again, how accurate is and that? And we've evolved, right? <laughs> we have evolved. 25% drop in attention span in 10 years. That's not, it's not something to be shouting from the the treetops, you know, but it's, it's really something like, and they put it down, of course, Microsoft are putting it down to uh, information technology of all companies to be talking about uh, the disadvantages. That's that's (laughs) always, that's always funny. That's like Pizza Hut saying like, we've noticed that a lot of people are getting fat and uh, it's probably pizza. And you're like, oh, well, thanks Pizza Hut. You're right. There's there's Stockman plummets. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 super that's super interesting for me. It is, uh, yeah, I, I could see like the whole idea of like eight seconds being there. And you know what? What's kind of scary actually is that you know in 2025, 20, 2030, like, are we going to be down to like three seconds, four seconds? Like, ugh, like uh, makes me uh, cringe a little bit there. Patrick. But the, the, you know, if our attention span is dropping down to three or four seconds. It means that our anxiety levels have gone in the opposite direction because there's an inverse relationship. Um, because when the mind people aren't engaged with oxygen advantage and Hanu <laughs> is what sure. it is. That's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, so we we have a rosy future based on this trend, you know. Um, but no joke <laughs> yeah, aside, I really do think it's something that 2021 has been the year of the breath and you know your launch as well with hanu as well you know it's been really going in the right direction so it's been super yeah 
For sure. No, that's great. Well, one of the things that I'll talk about is is what I've been working on. And then I want to ask you, like, what's your what's your what's your focus in 2022? So in 2021, yeah, I I didn't come out. A lot of times I'm one of those and this is, I'm going to throw my wife totally under the bus right now. When she listens to this, she's just going to like smack me in the shoulder. Uh, my wife, when I met her, she was one of those individuals that was super into like New Year's resolutions. But the thing about my wife, which is incredible, is like she is one that, I mean, she sticks to it. And like when I say sticks to it, I mean like she will look back on like December 31st and be like, this was my goal that I had on January 1st and this is how I made it. And it's like every year, like she's really incredible when it comes to that. So um, yeah, I don't know kind of what it was, but I mean, for me, it ended up being that she was like, okay, now Jay, you need to make your New Year's resolution. So I've been doing it for the you know the past, I mean, we've been married now for 10 years. So I've been doing it close to probably eight years or so. It probably took me two years to say, okay, let me you know finally do it. She kind of wrote me in. And so this past year, one of the things that I really made uh, just kind of like a really conscientious decision on was that I wanted to focus on, and this is going to sound really funny to the listeners who aren't maybe super familiar with a lot of the stuff that I do, um, and especially kind of the nature of what we do here on this podcast. But my focus was to actually stress myself more. This is the Q&A portion of the podcast, which is where you, the listener, will submit your questions to us, either you're watching us on YouTube or you're listening to us on the Hanu Health Podcast. You submit the questions. And the cool thing is, is that we'll answer it, especially if it's regarding breath work, stress resiliency, stress adaptation, hormesis, whatever makes sense for Patrick and I to answer, we'll answer it. And the other cool thing is, is that if you uh, submitted your question and we answer it here, then what we'll also do is send you a free Hanu Health gear package. You just reach out to us with your name. You reach out to us with your address and we'll send it out to you. So how do you do that? You can reach us at Instagram at Hanu Health. You can also reach us at podcast, sorry, podcast at HanuHealth.com. Just email us if we read your question. Also too, if you write us a review, which I'll read at the end of this podcast. So let's jump on in. Our first question comes from Mike. Mike says, or Mike asks, I've been having difficulty with managing my anxiety and comfortability when doing the breathe light to breathe right exercise. The slow inhale, and I'm assuming the CO2 retention, causes me to feel a little on edge. Is there anything I should do about this or should I avoid doing this exercise until I have tried other avenues? This is a really great question, Patrick. Obviously, write down your alley here. So breathe light to breathe right. Maybe it'd be great to uh, explain to the audience who may not be familiar with what that exercise is. And then uh, answer Mike, like for him, like, is this something that he should still be doing, though he feels a little bit on edge, a little anxiety? Is there other things he should do before it? What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've had mistakes and made mistakes with it over the years. I remember when I came across Breathing Work and Breathe Light, it was back in 1997, 1998. And the way that I was doing it, and basically Breathe Light is about breathing less air. That's simply what it is. Taking less air in, into your body in order to generate a feeling of air hunger. And the air hunger is telling you that carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood because Carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. But I remember when I was doing it, yeah, I used to tense up to do it. I didn't have instruction at the time. I had very, very basic, you know, understanding of it. 
And I was tensing myself, and this is very common with people with perfectionist tendencies, putting in too much effort. I remember going to this doctor, his name is Dr. Jack Gibson, and he was a 92-year-old surgeon, and he had conducted 3,000 operations without anesthetic, using hypnosis. And he had spent many decades as well working with people with asthma. And at that time as well, I had a huge interest, as I still do, but definitely with asthma. He put me into relaxation. And it was the first time that I actually could experience what it felt like to be fully relaxed. And that was the way to do it. And I had made the mistake, you know, putting in too much effort, too much focus, And I've seen it happen with people with perfectionist tendencies, and it's people with perfectionist tendencies who are more prone to chronic hyperventilation. These people are not the no-hopers. These people are driven. These are type A personalities, but they put in too much effort. And I suppose it's like that that old adage, how can you try and relax? You can't. You know, you can imagine a cat, a cat sitting up in the windowsill and the cat is trying to relax. The cat doesn't have to try and relax. It's only the human being that's trying to relax. So we, we need that passive approach. So I suppose with breathing, you know, if one is sitting down and you're practicing it and you're taking a really soft breath coming into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation, and then a very, very soft breath coming into your nose and a really, really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. There's two aspects to it. Number one is that the breath coming into your nose should be so soft, almost that you hardly feel any air coming into your nose. The second is that your exhalation should be so slow and relaxed and passive, just allowing the air to leave the body effortlessly. Now, it's a great way also to help stimulate the vagus nerve because you've got your slow exhalation there, which is going to help stimulate the vagus nerve, but you also have the increase of carbon dioxide, so which is a vagotropic effect. So it's kind of a, a weird exercise because in one ways it's generating air hunger, which can tip people into a fight or flight or suff- feeling of that suffocation. But on the other aspect, it's actually activating the body's relaxation response. Now, I remember then that when I was working with people, especially people with any tendency towards anxiety, that normally if an individual practices it, and they feel air hunger, they might find it's a little bit uncomfortable. But if a person has a little bit of anxiety or trauma, or if they had an ear drowning experience in the past or prone to panic disorder, they can have a very strong reaction to the feeling of suffocation. So coming back to Mike's question, number one is, Mike may have a strong reaction to the feeling of suffocation and the air hunger can generate a fear response as opposed to a relaxation response. So what I would say to him is, do reduced volume breathing, but one of the best ways to do it without having to do anything is actually just go for a walk with your mouth closed. Because it's natural during physical exercise that you feel air hunger. The body always feels air hunger when you do physical exercise. If, you, if you're not feeling air hunger going for a walk, go for a light jog. You know, And breathing in and out through your nose is going to enable carbon dioxide to increase in the blood. So you still get the exposure to the air hunger and the increase of carbon dioxide. Another aspect for Mike is don't do the mistakes that I'd made. And that's deliberately interfering with your breathing muscles. In actual fact, just let everything go. And focus on just the inside of your nose. Almost ignore your body from the neck downwards. 
pay no attention whatsoever to the chest and tummy, pretend it doesn't even exist. And just bring your attention just inside the nostrils and take that very soft breath air coming into the nose and the really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. It's a fine line. It's almost that it's a balancing act because you want to gently soften your breathing to the point of air hunger, but you don't want to soften it too much that the brain reacts by sending an increased stimulus to breathe because then you'll have involuntary contractions of the diaphragm and then you've gone a little bit too far. So your ability to do the breathe light exercise is going to be influenced by your bolt score and your bolt score is the length of your comfortable breath hold time. If you have a bowl score of, say, five or six or even 10 seconds, 11 seconds, 12 seconds, breathe light can be difficult because you already feel air hunger. You know, it's like one of these things. Some Somebody will say to me, you want me to breathe less air? You want me to feel air hunger? And I say, yeah, that's kind of the objective of this exercise. But they'll tell me, my problem is that I'm feeling air hunger all the time. And the reason that they are feeling air hunger all the time is when their bowl score is too low. So what we want to do is, we want to have them actually breathe less air to reduce the chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide to improve CO2 tolerance. By virtue of that, then the bowl score is going to increase because one of the factors that influence the length of your breath hold time is your ability to tolerate CO2, carbon dioxide. And when the bowl score improves, you've got much more control over your breathing. So what would I say to Mike? If his bowl score is less than 12 or 13 seconds, I would say don't worry about doing the breathe light exercise for the moment. Only focus on the small breath holes. Take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your nose and hold your breath for between three and five seconds. Then breathe normally for about 10 seconds. And again, take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold and hold for three to five seconds and then breathe normally for 10 seconds. And you will be surprised the people that we've used this simple exercise with. Like, I don't know if I mentioned it in the podcast, but one of our instructors, he had a beautiful 22-year-old daughter and she died by suicide. And I could only think there must be nothing which is horrific for any parent to have to go through. And a lovely kid, lovely family, and just that's the way it is, you know. And he's, he will say to me that the one exercise that helped him the most during this time was small breath holes. And then if we look at the article by Dr. Singh, he talks about holding of the breath and an exhalation as a means of stimulating the vagus nerve. And that might be what's actually happening, that instead of having a slow and relaxed and prolonged exhalation to help stimulate the vagus nerve, we are taking a normal breath in and out through the nose and pinching the nose to hold the nose, which by virtue of the exhale and breath hold after the exhalation, it's similar to having a prolonged exhalation. So it could be having a similar effect. So, yeah, so, Mike, there's your um, not a simple answer as, as, as seen. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just that feeling of relaxation and not interfering with your breathing muscles too much. And at the point that you start noticing that you have involuntary contractions of the diaphragm, take a rest. Or if you're stressed, take a rest. Because the, this exercise with doing the breathe light is not an exercise to stress the body and mind. It's an exercise to dampen the stress response and activate the body's relaxation response. And you'll know anyway by how you feel. And you will also know by the increased watery saliva in the mouth, your hands should be getting warmer. 
and your your mouth should be more watery. And of course, increased watery saliva in the mouth, your body is telling you that the body is ready for the digestion of food. Right. Yep, exactly. That's your parasympathetic nervous system kicking in the rest and digest uh, aspect of your of your autonomic nervous system, and uh, which is really mediated by the vagus nerve, which is, you, you mentioned, our 10th cranial nerve. One thing that's super interesting that resonated with me, Patrick, was this idea of uh, perfectionism and trying really hard. And a lot of us in, that are really interested in health and wellness uh, and very passionate about it tend to fall in that camp. And one thing that I've seen so often as a clinician when engaging in heart rate variability uh, biofeedback or just biofeedback in general is that people utilize way too much volition. They're trying way too hard, like you mentioned. And what we actually, we use a term in biofeedback called passive volition, which means that you know that you're engaging in the behavior through volition, but you're doing it passively. And I found this to be true with me. So when I first started getting into this, I am a absolute perfectionist when it comes to these things, is that I found that, you know, I was being taught kind of the old adage of like, all right, go ahead and place the hand on the belly. And when you inhale, I want that belly to go outward. And I was pushing, I was like, I'm going to try to push it as hard as I can. I was hooked up, you know, to an EKG watching heart rate variability. My heart rate shot up, my HRV plummeted. I was like, I don't feel good at all. Like this sucks. Like I actually remembered initially thinking, I don't think I'm going to do this for a living. Like I was getting trained in HRV biofeedback and I was like, I don't really like this. And then, uh, and I would ask, I was asking the person who was my, my clinician. I was like, well, what's going on here? Like you're telling me to breathe slow. I'm breathing slow. Like I'm breathing at, you know, five and a half breaths per minute right now. Uh, I'm engaging in all of the mechanics, but the problem was they weren't appropriate mechanics. Uh, and I, and I basically was like, I'm trying really hard at this. And they're like, you're trying really hard at this. And that's the problem. You need to be passive with this. So the funniest thing, the most informative piece of data that I ever got from uh, my first level of training, Patrick, was when they hooked um, EMG, looking at muscular tension on my traps during breathing exercises. And they also put it on my on my back, on my lats. And what I found was, is that when I was engaging in my volition type breathing, uh, which was, you know, causing crazy increases in heart rate decreases in HRV, I was holding so much tension in my shoulders and in my, and in my traps and in my back that like you could just look at it as blatant as it could be. Like I would be fairly relaxed when we weren't engaging in the exercise. But then when I engaged in the exercise, muscular tension just shot up. Like it was awful. And then finally they said, all right, now what I want you to do is allow your body just to rest and just focus on breathing through your nose. Mm. Uh, And when that happened and I didn't focus as much on like trying to pooch out my belly or like have that real strong lateral expansion of the ribs everything changed for me. And I was like, this is what it's supposed to feel like. I didn't feel as stressed as anxious and it worked for me. I felt a lot less stressed. I felt like I was activating my parasympathetic nervous system. And what happened? Heart rate goes down. HRV skyrocketed up. And then subjectively, I felt really good. And so I don't know, again, Mike may not experience anything like that. But I guarantee that other people who are listening to this have experienced some level of that. Uh, and and again, maybe that is one of Mike's you know difficulties. But I like how you kind of said too, like, we just need to progressively move towards there. But you know, focus and you know, move towards the breathe light to breathe right exercises. But I also think too, like just focusing again on our level of interoception and the the awareness of like, what is the body doing right now? Like, are you just like throwing, like, are you like 
clenching your body as if you were squatting, you know, 500 pounds? <laughs> like, or are you allowing yourself to kind of rest and relax and sink into the chair or wherever you're in? It's just something to focus on. So I, I, I like that. Good, good, good response there. Yeah, and there's even more out of that because now, if like for example, if somebody comes in with panic disorder, I'm never sure which which camp will they fall into. You know, can this individual will they tolerate the air hunger or will they not? So normally, what I do now just across the board is I actually have them do 30 seconds of air hunger, and then a minute's rest because I think it's very important that they realize at the end of the 30 seconds I'm going to say stop, so they know that the end is near. So even if it is a bit uncomfortable, the fact that they know it's only for a very short time. And the other thing is, I think it's really important to expose people to this air hunger. It is a slight feeling of suffocation. It's not the most pleasant. It's not bad, though, at the same time. But it's almost that you're training your brain to embrace discomfort, that you're not reacting to it. And I think it is that feeling and that fear of suffocation which can often feed into it. But, Jay... Your comments have raised another huge question, and that is all of the people who are wearing wearables, that they now know that something is tracking their data, and it could put on a stress on them that what will do is that the, the measuring of their data could hamper the very thing that they, were, they are trying to improve. But other, other aspects, say, for example, if you had an and the coach has, aspect, has access to this data. Now the athlete has an added psychological stress because they feel that the coach is going to make decisions based on the data that the coach is recognizing. Like, it's kind of a bit of a minefield, isn't it? It, it is. It's really interesting because when they've actually researched uh, kind of what happens when they put wearables on people, what we know is that for certain personality types, they thrive under themselves looking at their data and having others look at their data. For others, it can be very detrimental. So, so people who are really high in neuroticism and are like these perfectionists, it tends to be uh, to the detriment of them if they're not utilizing it appropriately or being coached appropriately with it. And then for other people, it's like they are, they see it as a challenge as in like, well, now like I am going to thrive because I have the data to inform me. So they basically have a full closed loop system. One thing we know uh, in scientific literature is that there is an effect in research called the Hawthorne effect. And the Hawthorne effect means that we will actually change our behavior, how we're acting or interacting kind of with ourselves mm. or with others yeah. when we are being observed. Well, is this the experiment that they did in the factory and they started changing light bulbs, or am I totally off yep. key on that one? It is. Yeah, no, it, no, it is. It is. So, and it's the idea too that if we know that somebody, like say, with a lab coat or behind a wall, is watching us, or if you know this little guy on our wrist or this little guy around our chest or you know whatever is watching us, then we're going to change our behavior because of that. And it doesn't. It could be for the better. Or it could be for the worse. Yeah. So it's a very interesting thing, and I'm sure that as we go um, uh, progress in kind of our understanding of how people interact with wearables, we're going to find out a lot that we're doing right and a lot that we're doing wrong. I'm sure there's a lot that we're doing wrong. And, you know, the one big thing that I see in the wearable space uh, is this idea of like fulfilling or like having a self-fulfilling prophecy based on data. Well, you know, my aura ring said that I slept like crap. So therefore, like my, the rest of my day is going to be like crap. Or it's like, oh, man, my HRV is bad. So like now I have an excuse not to train. Like it's those things that I'm like, eh, 
got to watch out because, yeah, and we want our data to inform us, but also too, and this goes back to something that I beat this drum on so often, is that we have to check in subjectively, like with our experience, with our feel. And if we find that too much data, like is causing like, you know, paralysis by analysis, take that thing off, throw it in the corner and come back to it later. You don't need it. That's the thing. It's like, this is not a need. This is something that can be quite helpful, but if it's to your detriment, then I mean, what good is it? Like throw it to the side, come back to it later, work on just your own subjective feel. Mm -hmm. Like that should be number one always. Again, that's my opinion. And I'm someone who, again, like kind of like the fox guarding the hen's house a little bit. You like that. I think it's great to hear it coming from you, to be honest with you. You know, it's it's great because it's down to earth in some ways. Well, I, I tell people too, it's like, I am a scientist. I'm a data nerd. Like I love this stuff, but I also realize that it can be detrimental if people don't know kind of how to use that power, you know, like if like the power is handed to you, mm-hmm. but like if you don't use it correctly, then, you know, it can really be to your downfall. And so for me, it's always like subjective first, objective second. How do they marry? How do they not and then go from there. And most people don't take the opportunity to do that. It's one of the biggest problems I have in the biohacking space is that people are like, it's objective data. And that is like, whatever is stated in my objective data goes like, I don't need to check in subjectively because my data can't fool me. And it's like, well, yeah, your data is your data in one sense. But then in another sense, like, you know, you have to know how to use it and harness it. And if you don't use it and harness it well, then you're not going to perform nearly as good as what you think you're going to be able to perform it can be again to your downfall so i could get on like the largest tangent on this and i know people have heard me beat this drum for a while but again like i like to say i'm a data guy probably as big as just about anybody in this space but i have realized too that if we place way too much emphasis on that then we're going to leave kind of our interoception our subjective experience behind and that's a bad thing Mm. but in terms of awareness Like I can see the benefits now because say, for example, you look at your data, if you are feeling crap and your data is telling you that your HRV is is significantly reduced. And then when you're feeling better and you see the change in your HRV, you'll get an idea over a period of time that all you have to do is tune in in yourself and you'll actually have a good idea where your HRV is without even having to look at the data. So there's a great kind of tool there as well. Long term. Yes. Yes. You know, for me, I tell people, I want you to utilize and leverage technology so that you can become your own biofeedback device. Because for me, it's like, I can't say, I won't be like, use enough, you know, hubris to say that I can know exactly where my HRV is at any given moment, but I'm pretty good at estimating it. Like I can tune in and feel, um, I can, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast. I can feel, I, I'm in tune with my heart rate a lot. Like I feel my heart heart rate. Uh, and I can know kind of based on the cadence of my heart rate, which sounds woo woo berserk. But again, I've done this for so long and I've been really into this world that I can notice the cadence of my heart rate and kind of feel my heart rate increasing or decreasing ap- across the respiratory cycle enough to kind of average out my HRV pretty closely. And I like, and I still use it and collect data all the time. Obviously I, you know, I own a health technology company with Hanu. However, I also realized too, that for me, 
like the subjective check-in to where I'm at always provides me with more data or information than me kind of double checking with biometrics. The biometrics are helpful. It can be really great to help better train interoception or self-awareness, but shouldn't be the thing that we rely on because we become way too reliant on other technology. And the last thing we want to be relying on is kind of things that inform our health and well-being. Mm-hmm. I think that's a scary place to be. That's great. Awesome. Well, Mike, again, thanks for the question. That was great. Reach out to us if we answered your question on here. If you remember asking us, podcast at hanuhealth.com. We'll get you out a awesome gear package. All right. Let's, uh, I know that we're going to be able to at least get to one more. So let's go ahead and ask one more question. We'll see what time we've got to get to the last question. But let's ask question number two, which comes from Robert. So Robert asks, what are your thoughts on apnea tables? Um, actually, did we ask? I think we asked this one last time. Sorry. No, this we is a question. No, we were about to. Yeah, the you're last, right. No, last session we got through in an hour and a half. We got through one question, so God only you're knows right. what we were talking about. So I think this is just <laughs> time to have you're this. Right. Yeah, for some reason, it was because I put this question on our last one, and then I was like, did we ask this? Like, no, we didn't. So, okay, Robert, sorry, going to ask your question now. So, Robert asks, what are your thoughts on apnea tables? Is this something that benefits the everyday individual, or is this really just for free divers? And I think what I'm remembering, Patrick, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you mentioned that you don't have like a ton of experience with apnea tables, and I think that's where I was like, oh, I think we asked this question. But, uh, you know, this is an interesting one to me because the only reason I came across like apnea tables uh, was because of like my interest in free diving and my interest in kind of researching free divers, very similar to like James Nestor when, you know, he wrote his book. I just found it fascinating. Um, and so I got into them and then I started utilizing them and still utilize them now. So, you know, I'll give you kind of my high level thoughts. It's not going to be a very granular thought on it, but I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on apnea tables? Is this something people should use or is this really kind of just dedicated to kind of the crazy free divers over in the, you know, left corner? <laughs> uh, you know what? I think this is a case of try it and see. There's a couple of things that I just put out there about the apnea tables. Number one is that your ability to hold your breath is going to be influenced by your everyday breathing. So it's not just to focus just on the exercise of the apnea table. Um, if, for example, you're doing your physical exercise with your mouth closed, if you're doing some breath holds during exercise, you have your mouth closed during sleep, if you're practicing light breathing, or say, for example, um, if you have somebody predisposed to the factors that can negatively affect their breath hold time, people with asthma, people with childhood asthma, anxiety, panic disorder, of hormonal changes. So the apnea tables are an interesting one. The, the other question that I would put out is that I think it can be sometimes not misleading, but sometimes a little bit more difficult for some people when they have fixed times. Because your ability to hold your breath and you've also got a fixed time for recovery. And, you know, maybe not everybody, it's not going to suit everybody. And like one thing that we work with with breathing is that we want to challenge them to a specific degree of air hunger as opposed to a specific time, you know, because you could ask one person to hold their breath for 60 seconds and they could literally go blue. You could have another person hold their breath for 60 seconds. It's no problem at all. So there, it, there would be in terms of the question is, number one is what's the person's bolt score? What is their everyday breathing pattern like? And also in terms of then fixed times and fixed recovery times, even though it's changing, 
And I know it's exposing to increased carbon dioxide and also the hypoxic effect. You know, I think it's been very interesting. And also free diving has provided us with so much science. I remember there's many papers written by a physiologist from Sweden. And it's funny, her name is, or her name does, it's in my head now, is Dr. Erika Shagate. I always have to be careful how I pronounce that one because there's a, different cultures have different connotations on that name. But anyway, she was intrigued by human beings. It was taught from a medical point of view that if a human being held their breath for four or five minutes, it could cause brain damage. But yet she was seeing primitive tribes being able to, and of course, the, 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 the armor divers, etc., being able to put their body and die for long periods of time to great depths without any sort of ob obvious damage. And she was intrigued, like, what's going on here? And I suppose that's an adaptability thing. But it could also be an adaptability thing that has passed down throughout the generation. So, so Jay, yeah, coming back to your question, I think, I think there's a purpose for, I think the one thing about breathing exercises the best way to find out is to practice it. And if you actually like doing it, it's for you. Yeah, it's, it's a, gr a great point, right? It's like, you know, we don't want to say that, hey, you have to be this competitive free diver in order to do this, or you have to, do, you know, be this to do this. It's like, just give it a go. You know, the one thing that I will say too, and again, I should preface this, is that like apnea tables, like if anybody engages in like a, a CO2 table or O2 table, but most specifically a CO2 table, is that these are really difficult. Um, they're difficult to do. And I would say, obviously, do not do them like because I've heard about people doing this and this is more like in line with people who like train with Wim Hof is like they'll or train like with the Wim Hof method is they'll do this like in pools. Don't do that. Like my goodness, don't do that because you can and you and you'll feel it the first time you do it. Like the propensity for passing out doing these things, like it's the bar is not very high. Like you can pass out doing these things and it wouldn't be uncommon to do it. Uh, just don't do it in a pool. People have died doing that. Um, and it's really sad. I don't want anybody to go out that way and, you know, trying to better their health and well being. So that's kind of the one thing that I will say. Um, if you are doing it too, and this is what what I did, uh, I don't know if you, you think this is okay advice. I'm assuming you probably would, Patrick. But like well, the first time I ever did this, probably the first few weeks that I did apnea tables, number one, I didn't do them every day. Um, I, I did not do apnea holds every single day. I think that could be to the detriment of somebody. Uh, I would only do this about once or twice a week. Um, and still, once or twice really is kind of my max. The first few times I did this, I would say the first few weeks, um, I actually had my wife observe. Um, I said, like, I want you to sit here just in case, like, I pass out. I was like, if I do pass out, like I'm not going to die. Like it's just my body. Like it is shutting down. Um, and you know, luckily I'm not underwater. Uh, I was like, but just kind of watch out. Like I'm just going to lay on the couch and I would just lay in a supine position, uh, just in case like anything happened. Uh, for me, uh, the first two or three weeks that I was doing apnea tables, I mean, it was so incredibly difficult. And I think I was challenging myself a little bit too much, to be honest with you. I was like, Oh, done breath work for a long time. CO2 holds like, I could do this. Uh, and I was just, I, I got to the point like way too often where I was going to like pass out. And so I was like, okay, let me dial it down a little bit. Uh, but for me, I have found uh, that the days that I do apnea holds and I do an apnea table, you know, for you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 minutes, 
I'm not holding my breath, by the way, at that time. That's how long it takes me to do the table. Uh, then I generally, I wish I could hold my breath 15 minutes. Free diving, here I come. Uh, the For me, I find that I sleep really well that night. Um, I just feel really relaxed throughout the day, and I sleep really well. And again, this is just me. There is no hard evidence that I found you know, in the scientific literature to back up what I'm saying. I'm talking about it for me personally. I've noticed enhanced deep sleep when I do that, deep sleep time and quality, and all also increase heart rate variability. So again, that is when that is me. That's my own personal experience, but I love doing them. Like I feel really good. Like it is great for me. I actually still do it for my overall like mental well-being and health because it just makes me feel better when I do it. So I would say again to Robert, your question, like I really like apnea tables. Like I use them, you know, generally once or twice a week. Like I don't go beyond that. Uh, and you know, I'm not a competitive free diet. Like I'm very interested and like free diving, but I'm not a competitor. Like I don't do it for free diving per se. Um, I do it really just for kind of overall health and well-being. Generally, my my mental and cognitive health. So, yeah. Any other thoughts there, Patrick? Yeah, I think it's you've some great points there. I was talking with somebody about two weeks ago, and they gave me a real case scenario of somebody who went to a swimming pool, was down there before they were noticed. They were down there for twenty minutes, passed on. I think it's terrible. I think it's really, really, you know, just one of those things. Maybe somebody then is asking, well, should I be doing breath holding if I'm swimming and things like that? Just to bear in mind, anytime you hyperventilate or if you take full big breaths before a breath hold, during the full big breaths, you're getting rid of quite a lot of carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. When carbon dioxide in the blood is depleted, the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe because the primary stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide. But if the alarm to breathe is depleted, you will feel absolutely no sensation to breathe. And it will allow you to hold your breath for a long, long time. However, during that time, of course, you haven't been taking in oxygen because you've been holding your breath. And your oxygen levels then, if they drop to below 60% and definitely below 50%, you've got a risk of passing out. There's no warning. It can lead to drowning. And unfortunately, there are young people going in it just would. I, like, I think breath holds should definitely be done on land. But if, for example, you're a swimmer and what you want to do is you want to reduce hydrodynamic drag going across the pool, you could, for example, you know, have you're taking your breath in through your mouth, which is normal during swimming. And then you might be taking your three or five or seven or whatever amount of strokes. Even we've seen some athletes doing a whole 50 meters on one breath. Now, that's pretty much a breath hold, even though they may be just releasing a small pocket of air throughout. I wouldn't expect one to have a hypoxic effect there to the point that they pass out because they haven't depleted carbon dioxide beforehand. And I would also agree with you, if one is doing pretty severe breath holding, it should be done just at most every second day and maybe five reps every second day. I know we do moderate to strong breath holds and we, we can often say do five reps up to twice daily, but they're not to the point of the, the apnea tables. The apnea tables are pushing it. And just for people, if you're pregnant, never do them. If you have anxiety or panic disorder, the breath hold can put you into such a fear response. And I like... I was working with a chap in London. I probably mentioned this story already. His nose was very stuffy and we use breath holding to open up the nose. But he had asthma and he had panic disorder. Now, for some reason, I had honed in on the asthma 
and I didn't hone in on his panic disorder when he was when I was looking through his form. I had him do the nose and blocking exercise. And it must have just put him into such a fear response. This was at about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. At four o'clock that day, he admitted himself to accident and emergency because of the fear response. So obviously what the breath hold had done was it put him into that increased sympathetic drive, but he didn't come out of it. Now, he was fine. He was fine when he went to A&E. But, you know, he didn't feel that way. But, you know, that's just so I suppose... I think the best thing for people to do is if you've never practiced any breathing exercise before, try and find out where you at with it. Go very, very gently. And, you know, there's so much to breathing and there's so much, you know, to explore here. So many different exercises to, to activate the body's relaxation response or to stress or to bring it into physical movement, bringing breathing into sleep how to, you know, in terms of if you wanted to have a preparation for uh, doing a public presentation or a physical event, like there's a lot that can be done here that, you know, there's a lot to explore. No, w- with, without a doubt. It's like, it's funny because I was thinking about Mike, the guy who asked the question last and we were talking about this, like, Mike, don't do this. Like if you're having difficulty with breathe light to breathe right, do not do apnea tables. I've always kind of viewed apnea tables as like maybe a little bit more of I hate to use the word advanced, but I think that that makes sense because I wouldn't want somebody who's like, oh, I've never done like any breath work to be like, oh, let's start you off with some breath holds, like apnea breath holds. Uh, eh, No, I think that's probably pushing it a little bit. And then kind of again, to your point, if you have a history of trauma, PTSD, uh, anxiety related disorder, uh, anything like that, then, you know, basically like holding your breath to like almost like uh, simulate drowning probably not a good idea for you. So let's let's take it in steps, minor steps. And then maybe like, again, we're not even saying like you need to quote unquote graduate to this. But like, if you get to the point where you feel like, well, I can try it, then give it give it a go. I will say too, that if you decide to try an apnea table, then you may be very similar to like myself, or maybe most people that try an apnea table for the first time, like it's really hard. It's really uncomfortable. Uh, you really have to push yourself. Um, it's one of those ones where especially if you're timing it right, like you end up having to push yourself. Um, And the other thing that I found too, when I do apnea tables is again, like the first probably three or four breath holds that I do are always the most challenging. Um, And as kind of, again, my um, uh, tolerance and and decreased sensitivity to CO2, as that kind of uh, increases as I go along, then the last few breath holds typically aren't as hard. It's not that they're easy, but it's not as hard. And one of the things, again, that you'll notice, and then I'll notice is that, again, maybe you start off with a 60-second breath hold or maybe, I don't know, 30-second breath hold. We'll start with there. Uh, and then you'll find that like the 30 second breath hold when you first start may be really dang difficult to do. And then your next one, maybe it's 30 seconds or maybe it's 45 seconds, like is, is difficult, but it's a little bit easier. And the next thing you know, you're at a minute. And when you get to 30 seconds, you're like, oh man, I got to 30 seconds. Like I feel good. Like there's no problem. But the first one you did the first 30 seconds, it was like, oh my gosh, like, am I going to die here? Like, it's an interesting feel. Like for me, again, it's almost like becomes a little bit gamified. Again, I think this comes back to my neuroticism and perfectionism, <laughs> but it's a little bit gamified because for me, I'm like, oh man, like I'm cruising along. Like I can beat this thing. Like it's a challenge for me. So I like it. For some people that may not be what floats their boat. Now that may be kind of a little bit, you know, too much for them or just again, not their game that they want to play. 
totally understandable. Just, you know, if you have the ability and willingness to try it, then it might be a cool thing for you to try. But I wouldn't say that it's like, oh man, everybody should be doing apnea tables. Like this should be a part of everybody's health routine. I think as we kind of identified here and clarified, I don't think that's the case, especially for like someone like Mike right now. And you know, what's even more interesting is the question, what forces you to terminate the breath hold? So say, for example, when we're doing a long, long breath hold, you're experiencing the involuntary contractions of the diaphragm. There's a point that you just have to let go. And it's very difficult for people to hold their breath consciously to the point that they pass out if they don't hyperventilate beforehand. But there was one researcher, physiologist called Parks, P-A-R-K-E-S, I can't remember his first name, and he investigated only in 2010. What causes human beings to let go? Is it because of a buildup of carbon dioxide? Is it because oxygen levels are dropping too much? Or are there other factors? His conclusion was it was the discomfort signals coming from the diaphragm up to the brain. Interesting. Like like a nerve, nerve signal, like coming from the nerve endings? I could see that because like when I get to a long breath hold, like my stomach's going crazy, my throat's going crazy, like the spasms and like, it's very uncomfortable. Like, and I could, I'd see that the diaphragm is sending that signal up to the brain saying like, uh, are you underwater right now? Like, are you about to die? Like what's going on here? I can, I can see that. That's the hypothesis and that's what they've stuck with. Yeah. <laughs> Until we've proven otherwise. That's right. So Robert, awesome question. I really appreciate that. Apnea tables is one that we haven't covered. I'm sure we'll cover Cover it, you know, in, in, in more podcasts soon, but that's a, that's a great one. So thanks, Robert. Well, again, we're going to have to wrap it up here. We had one more question on the docket, but hey, we got to, instead of getting to one, we got to two, Patrick. So I think that's pretty good. <laughs> Watch out. Here we come. Next thing you know, we'll be at three. Uh, so again, like if you were one of the people who submitted the questions, like we want to send you free gear and we want to send you Patrick's signed book, Atomic Focus, which is incredible and mouth tape. So like, please make sure that you reach out to us. And we're about to give out one last thing, which is by reading a review. So if you go on to Apple Podcasts, and a lot of people have asked, like, can we do it on Spotify? Can we do it elsewhere? Apple Podcasts is the only one that allows reviews, and they kind of drive all the other podcasts. It's the it's Most people download their podcasts still from Apple, even though I use like Spotify as well. Uh, we want reviews there, um, which helps people find us. So if you will go on and provide us with a five-star review, and you write something really nice about Patrick and I, and how awesome we are, and how much you love this show, we'll send you out, again, the gear package. So we have a review today that I'm going to read, which comes from, and I'm going to have to spell this one out because it's a bunch of letters. Again, this is somebody's username on Apple. It's AEKDB88, AEKDB88, which titled our review, Love the Show. And he or she said, I'm newer to HRV and breath work, but have learned so much from Jay and Patrick. I'm beginning to understand how to incorporate more consistently into my daily routine, and I'm excited to see where they take us next. So I thought that was a, a, a really good review there, Patrick. Yes, for sure. I, the good reviews are like gold dust, aren't they? Because I suppose we all take them seriously, Jay. Like even if we're just going to buy a book on Amazon, yeah, of course, we, we look at our reviews. We never get all five stars, but you, you look at the... There's always those trolls out there, those <laughs> trolls that are given one star. They, they don't have the damn book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, fair play to anybody who posts a review. Thanks very much. Yes, absolutely. Well, again, AEKDB88, please feel free to reach out to us. Podcast at HanuHealth.com will send you out a free gear package your way. So you can have Patrick's book, his mouth tape, a bunch of Hanu gear, 
we'll get it out to you. Last thing again, if you have not joined our waitlist, hanuhealth.com slash waitlist, let me just say in Q1, so quarter one of 2022, we are going to be coming out with some ginormous news. And I will say too, that at some point at the beginning of next year, I guess this year, as you listen to this in 2022, at some point, like we are going to unveil in all of its glory, what we're working on at hanuhealth.com and Hanu Health as a company. And the, the first people that are going to know about this are going to be the waitlist people. They're going to know well in advance. Now, we would love if they go out and spread the word. But if you want to be the one of the ones to know about what we're doing, all you got to do is go on to hanuhealth.com slash waitlist. Sign up there. You're going to get our newsletter. You're going to get updates on when we release these podcasts. You're going to get all this great article content, YouTube content. It's all going to be there. So please make sure hanuhealth.com waitlist. Also, follow Patrick and I at Hanu Health, at Dr. J. Wiles, at Oxygen Advantage, at Buteco Clinic, all on Instagram, Facebook, social media outlets. And we'd really love to have you there as well. Well, Patrick, it's been a blast again, man, to do this. I know we had a little bit of a unfortunate recording like snafus along the way, but hey, we, we did it. So, hey, man, I wish you and your family nothing but a wonderful holiday season and new year. And I'll catch you next time, man. Many happy returns. It was a pleasure, Jay. All right, absolutely. All right, everybody, take care. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.